Welcome to Living Bread Radio Presents, a program designed to teach and evangelize about the Catholic faith through various speakers and presentations given in the local area. Today's show features Father Vince Free, a missionary of the Sacred Heart, and his series entitled The Mystery of Vatican II, recorded at St. Raphael Center in March 2008. And now, Father Vince Free. The Church seeks to convert solely through the divine power of the message he proclaims, both the personal, the individual, and the collective consciences. Our conscience, what's good, what's right, what's wrong, what's true, what's false, in all the activities in which they engage, the lives and the concrete milieu, the, the environment which are theirs, the cultural background. When we say the phrase seeking to convert, we're saying looks to the transformation of humanity. And for, to quote, for the church, is, it is a question not only of preaching the gospel to more people or in ever wider and geographic areas, but also of affecting and, as it were, upsetting through the power of the gospel mankind's criteria of judgment, determining values, points of interest, lines of thought, sources of inspiration and models of life which are in contrast with the word of God and the plan of salvation. Again, that's a cumbersome way, but what it's saying is, what do we use our criteria of judgment? We're going to, if you are countercultural, you upset the way, the human way of thinking, and you bring into this human way of thinking or criteria of judgment values from the gospel, truths and principles given to us by God. The points of interest, lines of thought, sources of inspiration, models of life. Who, who do we have as models of life in our culture? <laughs> well, you know, it isn't really the one you want that's going to do much good. Now, and then what, he, what the Pope says here is just, which are in contrast with the word of God and the plan of salvation. Equivalently, Pope Paul VI asserts that the gospel provides humanity with a higher and more valid criteria of judgment for the task of forming a culture. The strata of humanity, in Pope Paul's words, are the intertwining layers of rights, duties, relationships, liberties, values, beliefs, goals, etc., that make up human society. The criteria of judgment is a basis on which these components are to be incorporated into a culture. So the Pope is saying that no reference is more cognizant of human dignity or better suited for securing the well-being of humanity than the values and truths found in the New Testament. Now, in its most primitive form, culture was focused on survival. Its major and almost exclusive component was religious. This is what I found in Papua New Guinea. To primitives, separation of church and state was unthinkable. Their, quote, state, and what little civic order they had, was derived from and wrapped up in the practice of their religion. Tribes were more relational than functional. That is, they were unspecialized multifamily groups, each the structural duplicate of the others. They were simply amalgamated into clans and tribes, forming not so much a political body as a social, cultural, religious, ethnic entity. It was only with the coming of what we think of as civilization the development of agriculture and industry, competition for land use, the harnessing of energy and the refinement of spe and specialization of human skills, is only with that 
coming of so-called civilization that actual economies emerged and the need for government became more pressing. So we don't have to trace the advancement of civilization from the Stone Age, you know, the discovery of fire, through weaving, poverty, <laughs> uh, gunpowder, all the way up to the movable type that we have today. But this, we have to recognize this. We have to recognize that, number one, government itself is a pragmatic process, a system chosen or imposed in light of given circumstances with the expe- expectation of achieving certain results. We needed government after society developed to a point where there was this competition and all these other things. Number two, government in Western civilization progressively displaced the overriding role of religion in culture's formative processes and in its influence on human affairs. Government became more or less like the religion. Three, governance is subject to constant change and is not in any sense of the word a static reality. Circumstances change, urgent needs change, relationships change, ways and means change, and the very operation of government itself produces change both in those governing and those who are governed. I guess you got a real clear example today in the gun law dispute in the Supreme Court. You know, the ownership of guns in Washington, D.C. Situations change. For, regardless of change, government's key interests always pertain to these basic human concerns of family, religion, education, security, and economy. That's what government's all about. Now, if we put all of this together, we can say that culture, like a corporate value system or a tribal subconsciousness, underlies and moderates the attitudes and habits of a group. It sets up social signposts for acceptable behavior and provides a basis for achieving significance and for meeting meeting basic human needs. So culture is at once the custodian of order and stability as well as the medium for effecting change. In more primitive societies where religion, education, ownership, and industry were all layered into family along with built-in social deterrence, there was little need for government. To, just to give you a practical example, if, uh, if a young lad in Papua New Guinea was a big head, didn't want to do what the elders said, all they did was say, you will, not have, you will not get married, you will not have a bride, and you will not own any land. That's all. Because the only way they could get married was through, you know, arranged marriage. And the only way you could own learn, land is if you could, you could use it, you wouldn't own it, but you had to be married. So they, that kind of settled the whole story. And uh, this was where the uh, survival culture dictated what was going to happen. But now, if you go even in the most complex and interdependent of modern societies, the building blocks of culture are still the same. Family, religion, public safety, education, economy. However, with the image or the self-concept of the human person, still what matters the most now, one final note before we go on to Solzhenitsyn here. Until about the 18th century, the term civilization, we use that word as if you're civilized, we used it to denote an urbane or cultured life as contrasted with what they called, you know, primitive or rural crudity, if you were civilized. So the concept of civilization as a culture rather than a cultured way of living came much more recently with an awareness of the fact that even primitive peoples possessed highly organized cultures 
or social institutions. In fact, you know, it, it, the peculiar thing is unless you understand the culture, you can't understand a lot of things that goes on. One of the examples I remember from Father Tim O'Neill's book on uh, We the People, about the people of Papua New Guinea, was he had gone on this uh, bush patrol where you have carriers. You know, the, you have to carry your mask kit and your, uh, your bunk bed and all kinds of stuff, and the people would carry your, you know, your kitchen utensils and whatever, and you go off in the bush and go two, three, four, five hours march. And what they would do is the, the uh, person, the local, like the catechist or the teacher or somebody who was the head of this volunteer group, they would pass out some prize, some, you know, like stick tobacco or maybe uh, some uh, canned goods or something. And he was watching this, this the head guy that, that organized the uh, volunteers, and he'd pass out the stick tobacco to each one. He came to this one woman, and he threw the stick tobacco in the ground right at her feet. And uh, Tim looked at this, and he said, well, that was not very nice. And so he, he asked this other priest about that, and the guy said, no, he says, that was a sign of respect because she is a tab- tambu. In other words, she's an in-law. And you cannot touch something that an in-law is touching at the same time. So he was showing the woman respect, whereas what he thought was, well, this is a mean thing to do. Just throw that stick tobacco in the sand. So this we have to understand, that there, even in primitive cultures, there is a culture. So, okay, now what I want to do is take a look at our own current culture through the eyes of Solzhenitsyn. As long as his social commentary and criticism were aimed at communist Russia, he was well regarded in the West. He won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1970. In that light, his graduation speech at Harvard initially made quite an impression in so-called academia or educated circles. After a very brief period of wonder at the scope and grasp of his intelligence, consternation over his message set in. His fate was sealed. He was dismissed as a narrow-minded reactionary, out of touch with the modern age, and blind to the great progress that had been realized under the banner of secular humanism. What Solzhenitsyn had to say can serve as an overview of affairs in the United States today. Now, although these are not direct quotes, these lines of thought that I have here reflect his, his thought on our culture. First of all, the blindness of superiority that leads to arrogance and isolation and the mistake of insisting on convergence, that is, forcing cultural and economic conformity on people who have distinctive ethnic and religious values. Very good observation. A paradoxical loss of courage among the ruling class and the intellectual elite. This is a forerunner of the politically correct syndrome that makes cowards of those who are subservient to opinion rather than attentive to principle. Third thing, freedom from material want, which, when turned to self-indulgence, leads to impoverishment of the spirit, enslaving people to convenience and security. Doesn't that kind of ring a bell? Fourth, reliance on the letter of the law as the supreme arbiter, with no regard for the spirit of the law, no room for self-restraint, no concern for the common good. A forerunner of the Sioux Happy Society in which it is now in vogue. Along with the readiness to operate at the ex- extreme limit of legal frames. And this is kind of like a forerunner of what happened in the world of finance with Enron. The moral mediocrity 
loss of nobility of spirit, and severe constriction of spontaneity that is consequent to a self-serving legalistic approach to life. And here he's talking about individualism. The debilitating effects of a protest movement so commonplace that society is more subject to negativity than to positive values. In other words, instead of advancing you know, that which is good and noble and desirable and has value, we have, all we do is go into this protest. And this, what has happened, is there's more freedom to do evil deeds than to do what is good. Where well-intentioned people with generally good, though slightly flawed, ideas are immediately shot down in flames for want of a willingness on the part of narrow self-interest groups to engage in constructive, constructive dialogue. This is what we got, what we call now political gridlock. Now, this guy's talking way back in 1980. Again, the corruption of the integrity of public opinion when the provision of instant and credible information takes priority over providing accurate, responsible, and trustworthy information, where a calculated guess will do, and if wrong, will never be corrected. This, in a way, is a forerunner of what we now know as spin. The invasion of privacy and the gross violation of a person's right not to know, not to be filled, stuffed full of gossip, nonsense, and uninformed opinion, which is rampant. Then he says here, the tragic consequences of hastiness and superficiality, which are the psychic sickness of the 20th century. Hastiness and superficiality. We'll return to Living Bread Radio Presents after a short break. This is Monsignor John Kozar, National Director of the Pontifical Mission Societies in the United States. Years ago, Catholics were not allowed in Nagaland in northeast India. Asked by the government to serve as a nurse, Sister Guadalupe became the first Catholic in the century in Nagaland. She wasn't allowed to evangelize, but she secretly buried religious medals in the soil. More than 60 years later, she returned to find that her faith had borne fruit. Hundreds of missionaries served after her, and today some 60,000 Catholics have embraced the faith in Nagaland. We may lose sight of hope until we dig deep and see that our hope is found always in our faith in Jesus. It's a lesson from the missions. Brought to you by the Pontifical Mission Societies. To learn more about becoming a missionary right where you are, visit our website at onefamilyandmission.org. Remember, if you're baptized, you're a missionary. Through prayer and sacrifice, in word and witness, we're all part of this one family and mission. And now the conclusion of today's production of Living Bread Radio presents. The insurmountable barriers, financial and ideological, against breaking into the media with a message that is not politically correct, a message contrary yet worthy of inclusion in public dialogue. The uncritical tendency to turn to socialism as a cure-all for society's ills. This is still going on today. I mean, more so. It intensifies. Solzhenitsyn identifies this as a false and dangerous current in that socialism is not an alternative to capitalism, but a radical alteration of the social order itself, depriving the individual of the most basic 
of natural rights. All, all the papal encyclicals from 1890 onward, all of them decry any attempt to install or force on people socialism. Because, as I mentioned in another talk, the person becomes a dependent of the state. And it, it, it really is, uh, undermines the uh, personal human dignity. The standardization of Western well-being. In other words, what is well-being today? Materialism and status. That's well-being. In spite of TV stupor and insufferable music. <laughs> the words of Solzhenitsyn. <laughs> TV stupor and insufferable music. A reluctance to engage in the fight for our planet, not a vague matter for action sometime in the future, but a fight of, fight of cosmic proportions already being waged. A, debilita a debilitating dream of the status quo as a symptom of a society that has reached the end of its development. That, that you just settle for the status quo. You don't have any more vision anymore. You don't, you're not energized to do something of moment. And his final comment, disregard for the fact that any true solution to failing unity and strength must be such, any solution must be such that it is not a repudiation of our physical nature nor a denial of our spiritual makeup. And that's, what, that's the problem with our culture today. It denies our spiritual makeup. We're just machines. Having experienced the brutality of atheistic communism in, the, in its ruthless pursuit of human welfare in Russia, Solzhenitsyn was understa understandably concerned about any sign of decay in the moral fiber of the United States. The only hope for keeping the USSR at that time from world domination. Solzhenitsyn was pulling for us. In addition to these comments and his views on rationalistic humanism cited earlier, he remarked on the indispensable need for moral criteria in politics. He expressed the hope that pacifists who had been involved themselves in the betrayal of several nations in the Far East would hear the moans coming from that region, and he linked the loss of willpower to psychological ambivalence. All of his, all of his comments, but these in particular, were taken as an adversarial critique of America rather than a partisan appeal for a return to its original greatness. Solzhenitsyn's concluding remarks in regard for the preservation of human dignity and the spiritual dimension of human beings reveal his abiding admir admiration for the founding principles of our country. His commentary on American culture does, goes much deeper than the more typical observation that we are a people in pursuit of pleasure, power, and prestige seeking significance and security and possessions, superior technology, and power. Now, Pope John Paul II's views, like those of Solzhenitsyn, recognize these same counterfeit values as dead-end liabilities that come with technical development. We have technical development, so this is what happens, what he described in our society, our culture. But John Paul II also sees the corresponding, quote, diminished sensitivity to the spiritual dimension of human existence, reducing the meaning of life, human life, to the material and the economic factors. To continue the quote, I mean, he says, to the demands of production, the market, consumption, 
the accumulation of riches, the bureaucracy with which an attempt is made to regulate these very processes. The Pope's appeal to the more noble qualities in humanity are invariably found behind even his sharpest criticism. He, too, was often portrayed as a common scold, as unappreciative of human freedom, as reactionary and authoritarian, rather than what he really was, an informed, authoritative person open to genuine dialogue and one who stood in admiration of much of what makes America. Now, this brief sketch provides some feel for the currents and eddies that swirl beneath the surface of human activities. We would get a better perspective on this if we know how we got here. We'll do a little review of history to come perhaps to a better understanding of the processes and purposes behind the course of history. We can find a good example of this in the Old Testament. If you read the Bible, you know as long as the chosen people acquitted themselves of the first and highest duty required by the virtue of justice, as long as they worshiped God as sovereign Lord, what happened? There was peace and prosperity in the land. As often and as soon as the Israelites fell away from true worship, they became self-indulgent, dishonest, petty, deceitful, spineless, fragmented, and vulnerable to their enemies. It's in the Bible. You know, the Old Testament reads like a diary, the relationship between God and his people. And that's what we find. As soon as they fell away from worship, calamity overtook them. The Israelites were not overwhelmed by disaster because God had forsaken them. Rather, they brought disaster on themselves because they had forsaken God. Worship unifies a people, and authentic worship gives a people a sense of dignity, of worth, purpose, solidarity, courage, and trust. By comparison, big money serves self-interest. It builds fences, promotes individualism, evokes suspicion, and can even create paranoia. In broad terms, New Testament history runs parallel to the old. The secularization of the West, of Christendom, took place in three steps. First, there was the loss of Christian unity. Secondly, there was the abdication of social justice in an inordinate pursuit of wealth. And third, the loss of faith as the secular world became the transcendent reality. Now, this kind of an analysis may appear to be very simplistic, but we have to keep in mind that a life-giving Christianity, a vital life-giving Christianity, depends on a living faith, not on a mere social tradition. This means that Christendom must be renewed in each and every new generation, or it becomes an empty formality, at best a cultural status symbol, something like belonging to a social club. The recent book put out, the, uh, how does that go, The Death of the Faithful? the book on Boston and the whole Catholic Church that just uh, fell away, that had become, their faith was an empty formality, at best a cultural status symbol. And as soon as that uh, no longer served that purpose, they were gone. So the process of handing on a vital Christianity is greatly complicated by three constants. There are three things that are always going on here. One is change. 
Another one is what you might expect, worldly opposition to the church. As Jesus himself said, they they were against me, they're going to be against you. And three, our human nature. The human failings found in the people of both the Old and New Testament. In regard to this third constant, the human frailties, the prophets, Jesus, and the Second Vatican Council all pointed to the same and only authentic solution, which is repentance. (laughs) This is not a one-shot deal. It's an ongoing process, much like that of the recovering alcoholic. It rests on the principle that apart from God, we are unequal to the task. The product of repentance, conversion, is not merely a turning away from sin, but a turning away from self in an unconditional acceptance of God's love. We cannot get over egoism without accepting God's love, and we cannot accept God's love without getting over egoism. This is the interior transformation called for by Vatican II. Vatican II called this renewal stuff meant an interior renewal. In keeping with the urgent needs of our time, this renewal is best realized in the form of an apostolic spirituality which is committed to bringing gospel values into, quote, the culture and cultures of our times. Spirituality is, of course, of the essence. Yet as a way of life, it cannot consist merely of an isolated response to God's universal call to holiness. It must incorporate an individual into the mystical body of Christ, and it must look to bringing about the reign of God here on earth. If we're going to have a spirituality that's just for our own uh, advantage, it will not change the world. So the spirituality must deal with these other two constants, change and worldly opposition. We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Living Bread Radio Presents. For a copy of this program on Compact Disc, call 330-966-2903 or send an email to orders at livingbreadradio.com and reference the program broadcast date. This has been a production of Living Bread Radio in Canton, Ohio. Join us again next week at the same time for more Living Bread Radio Presents.